0: Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name, is Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster. Big week this week. Simon, we've got one of the biggest TV shows that, you know, TV's ever got to witness. Yeah. Yep. Steve Carell in The Patient. I know. That's very exciting. What? 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 <laughs> Wait, no. What about that Lord of the Rings show? We'll probably talk about that on the
1: show as well. We'll week. mention that briefly. I think we will. Hello, Dan. Hello, everyone. This is not like TV only battle. Television! teacher mother secret lover that's it that's your movie
0: well i said that i had an idea for folks this is screen watching my name dan barrett joined by simon foster simon how are you don't answer that i don't really care i've got a head cold
1: yes i know you've been very sniffly Uh, We even for a moment there considered doing best sneezes in film and television for our middle bit. But we thought again, because you are quite sniffly. Who gets a cold in Brisbane? I thought you were all healthy sun
0: lovers up there. No, the problem is I've got this baby in the household now. And so she goes to daycare and gets every sickness possible and then brings it home. And then shoves her fingers in my nostrils and eye sockets. (laughs) And then here we are. So I've been consistently (laughs) sick every week for, I don't know, about nine months now. New parenthood. I love it. Germs germs you thought you'd left behind years ago and now right up your hooter. So yeah, this week, if you hear me just drifting off and, you know, maybe I'm halfway through a sentence and i just start looking off into the distance, <laughs> so, just
1: ignore me. Just, you know, keep on Drooling rolling. uncontrollably. Yes, we get that from you quite a bit, yeah. Dan. So boy, it is a big week for television. Let's face it. We're in the middle. We're in week two of House of the Dragons, week one of Lord of the Rings. This is so, could be the most exciting, you know,
0: couple of weeks of the, the television year. So I'm really curious to see the media releases that come out from Amazon over the next couple of days talking about their viewership. So yes. they'll be talking more in terms of global viewership than Warner Brothers worse. So, well, Warner Brothers, HBO Max, HBO. Yep. The difference there is that they on-sell a lot of their programming to other broadcasters. So in Australia, Binge and Foxtel, for example, have it. So they can't talk about a global number, whereas Amazon will be able to talk about a global number. But for HBO Max, like, they're talking about their Game of Thrones House of the Dragon series being the biggest rating success they've ever had. Like, it was yeah. the... Biggest debut on like night one, and so that was uh, just under 10 million people, I think, were watching it from memory. But anyway, mm. it was the biggest launch that they've ever had. Not quite Game of Thrones levels where they were getting to about 19 point something million, but then like over the week, as people discovered the show on HBO Max and were doing the catch up, it actually passed and blew into like 20 million people watching. So, like, this is a bona fide. Huge cultural hit. So yeah, it's, it's true. Really interesting to see those numbers come from Amazon and whether or not that people are glomming onto Lord of the Rings at the same time, and whether we see that sustained over the next couple of weeks.
1: You've got the inside tact with the the uh, people at Binge.
0: Did it? How did it do in Australia? Are they talking big numbers? Uh, look, I mean, I, I could ask the guys at Binge, and they will give me a sort of smile or a thumbs up, and just give me a you know, and say, hey, who and are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but also like on media, they're not going to share that with me. Sure. But uh, there was a media release from uh, Foxtel coming out talking about their viewership, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was significant. Like it was, yeah, I bet you know decent viewers. I think they, you know, certainly were very happy.
1: All right, well, that's all good things. What are we talking about on the show today? I know I've got a couple of movies that aren't exactly setting the world on fire,
0: but I've got some interesting points of view on them. I hope. So, we do have a couple of interesting things to talk about on the rundown. So, I'm going to be talking about. There were two new shows that dropped on Disney Plus this week that were fresh from the US. You've got mm-hmm. The Patient, which is this Steve Carell, Dominal Gleason, um, I don't want to say train wreck, but it's a TV show. Yeah, it's a TV show, isn't it? Yeah, let's talk about that a bit. Sorry. And also Mike, which is a docudrama about Mike Tyson. And something else I'm going to talk about is something that dropped on Disney Plus this week, but actually debuted about a month and a bit ago in the US. It's a show called The Bear, which quietly might be my favourite TV show of 2022.
1: Wow, that's not so quietly. You've been quite vocal about that on your socials. I'm keen to hear how you deep dive into that. And also, I think you'll be talking about this little show that no one's talking about called Lord of the Rings, The Power of the Apes. What's it called?
0: Uh, The Power of the Rings. The Power of the Rings. How much better would it be if it was not Lord of the Rings, but it was a remake of the Japanese horror film Ringu, and it was Lord of the Ringu, The Power of the Renews. I'd watch that. See, now that's something I'd be excited for. That terrified me, that film. All
1: right, let's get on with it.
0: Okay. It stinks. Okay, so I want to talk about The Patient and Mike. So let's start with The Patient. This is a TV series, and I don't have a proper written review for either of these because let's be honest i think both are trivial bits of television Ooh, so G, okay the patient i don't understand what the deal with this is exactly so it's co-created by joe weisberg who's the dude that made the americans so it's a pretty prestigious tv creator behind this quality and the show i've only seen the first two episodes which are both streaming now on disney plus but mm. you can find the disney plus in australia fx in the u.s and the premise of it is basically that there's a serial killer played by Dominal Gleeson in this crazy-ass wig. He has kidnapped Steve Carell, who's a uh, therapist, and he's got them, got him tied to a, you know, he's got cast iron, like, things around his legs. And Steve Carell
1: is, is this, is this uh, psychiatrist who's trying to deal with Dominal Gleeson, who reveals in a very sort of tense moment that...
0: Well, he's a serial killer. But I already said that, so, you know. Oh, did you? I wasn't listening. Yeah. So, basically, you've just got this thing. It's a two-hander, pretty much. Although there's a third person who's upstairs wandering around that we don't know what the deal is with them. Um, They do make their presence known at the end of the second episode, though. And probably the only compelling part of the two episodes that I saw. But it really is like a two-hander where the two of them are on a single stage set together and just monologuing back and forth. And there's the occasional flashback. You sort of find out a little bit more about Steve Carell and the sort of sad history of the breakdown of his um, marriage, maybe, or maybe she died. I don't think we've quite been given that clarity sure. just yet. Um, mm-hmm. If we have, I'd drift it off at that point because, you know, there's only so much going on. The problem with this is ultimately you've got Steve Carell, who's an incredibly charismatic, funny guy who's capable of some pretty serious dramatic chops as well. And then you've got Donald Gleason, who is exceedingly charming, Okay it also has pretty strong dramatic chops, but you're really sort of stripping both of them of their charms and you' just got like this really flat feeling single stage uh, you know black box play effectively with a very mm. fake looking set outside. like you know when you see like the background drops that of coming down, like it's it just looks fake. It doesn't really feel like it's an authentic space that they're in. And nothing about this actually feels like you can really tangentially connect to any of it. Now have you seen this, Simon? Yes, I did watch the
1: first two episodes, and I was, first of all, the one surprise I got out of it was that it's only a 21-minute episode, so these are these are um, small bite bits of uh, tension and drama. Um, mercifully, I would say. Yeah, look, after two episodes, it is tough to get a, a, a hook into this, exactly what I'm after. I'm not as convinced that Carell is a great dramatic actor as as, as likable as he is as a comedic actor. Um and I do agree with you that, that Gleason is very good in almost everything he does. But this feels very much like a pitch for a series that um, hopefully will play out to its full potential as it go along, but reveals very little of that in the first two episodes, I think is the best way of putting
0: it. Look, here's what it feels like to me. It feels like one of these shows that have come along, which was first the podcast with you know, <laughs> oh, yes. two or three star actors that are being cast Damn in the podcast. podcast people. A narrative yeah. play. That is designed entirely to sell it as a TV series at some point. And almost all of them have been terrible with the exception of maybe Homecoming, the Julia Roberts series by Sam Esmail a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. But, you know, essentially it feels like it's so lacking in, uh, you know, any sort of third dimensionality to it. It's really just this two-hander because that's kind of the strength of a podcast narrative where you have a limited number of voices in it. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're both on the same boat about this one. I think this is, a. hopefully
1: it'll get better, but at this point is a, a fairly minor entry from the um, the talent
0: involved. And there is considerable talent involved. Yep. Yeah, and I also want to talk about Mike really briefly. Mike, it's a bio series. It's not... Mike Tyson wasn't involved in it, but he may as well have been because you're watching that first episode and it is... The actor playing Mike Tyson, whose name I don't recall, and I failed to, you know, jot it down. If anything, it seems polite not to mention who's in this. Basically, he's on stage doing, like, a TED Talk sort of a thing, talking about, woe is me, this is the terrible upbringing that I had. This is what led me to become the notorious boxer and notorious public figure that I've come to be. And so, through this, it's very much from his perception, perspective... And very much from a, um, we're supposed to feel sympathy for him based on his life circumstance. Okay. So he grew up, you know, poorer than poor, you know, family just didn't really sort of exist for him. Uh, his mother was a fairly strong presence who tried to keep him on the straight and narrow, but she didn't really have any money. She did whatever she could to survive. Uh, And then you've got him sort of turning to a life of crime as a 10-year-old and finds himself in some sort of a type thing where he then learns how to box. You've got that happening, but we're supposed to feel sympathy for him, even though they established quite clearly that of his um, family, two of his siblings went off to, like, fairly reputable careers and whatnot. So I don't understand how we're supposed to feel sympathy for this guy who just chose to jump into a life of crime and then later on far more notoriously, um, you know, uh, convicted rapist. Like, he's a pretty awful human being. And the idea of watching a multi-part TV series celebrating his life while also being asked to feel incredible sympathy for him and his life experience, I'm just not there for it. Yeah, look, I was
1: uh, I was a little bit more upbeat about this. I agree that it's you gotta tread carefully when you're delving into the life of, of someone who's lived such highs but also been responsible for such lows. I, I am gonna say that. the big plus is that it's a craig gillespie directed first couple of episodes the man who did i tonya who did pam and tommy um who has a way of finding um some kind of fresh energy some kind of newness about about these pop culture figures um i'm you have spoken at length in the past about these sort of TV movie modern history versions that seem to be flooding our our streamers at the moment, I, yeah, and I would the, certainly put it's the this into
0: adaptation.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think that the the breaking down of the fourth wall in this, when he turns and talks to the camera, a terrific performance by Harvey Keitel as the the boxing coach who drags him out of the gutter. Um, there's cliches that abound in this but i think with gillespie's touch and um a pretty compelling sort of uh forward momentum to to mike tyson's story i was actually kind of hooked on this i, I watched all that was available so um i yeah i didn't know of it it hasn't quite gotten the buzz maybe because it is mike tyson that that uh, some of the other uh, modern sort of takes on modern history have have offered up but uh yeah i, I was pretty cool with this one i didn't mind it
0: Yeah, no, no, I reckon, fuck this TV show. (laughs) They've made a moral choice, and it's just gross. Simon, let's move on. You've got a movie you want to talk about.
1: I do. This year's uh, most anticipated, one of the most anticipated films this year, is the first film since Mad Max Fury Road for George Miller. It's called 3,000 Years of Longing. Some years it's Volcano movies, some years it's Robin Hood movies, some years it's meteor movies. Turns out in 2022, it's the year of the hot black guys and repressed British woman talking things out in hotel rooms movies. Still in cinemas as I do this is Good Luck to You, Leo Grande, in which Daryl McCormack and Emma Thompson bond and bonk. And now we have Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton donning the complimentary bathrobes and working things out in Mad Max director George Miller's new film – but Miller has far loftier, more contemplative ambitions than just male-female harmony. In 3,000 Years of Longing, he uses the legend of the jinn, which is the Middle Eastern spirit creature that gave rise to the genie in the bottle myth, to consider the very essence of storytelling itself. Miller's film is a modern fairy tale draped in the colors and conventions of an adult fantasy, but also a discourse on the power of the narrative and how modern life may be robbing mankind of that power. We all we know all of this because Tilda Swinton plays a narratologist, which I didn't know was a thing. That's an academic working in the, the structure of narrative, its history, its relevance to our beliefs. She's in Istanbul on a conference When she stumbles across a small glass canister, which, when polished with her electric toothbrush, that's so gross, uh, unleashes Elba's initially enormous Homeric Greek spouting genie. To help her understand how the whole three wishes thing works, he begins telling her a series of tales that lets Miller create fantasy worlds of bygone eras. Um, there's some stuff in here that's really cool to look at and some flashes of inspired magic realism that hints at what this might have been in the hands of a uh, Guillermo del Toro or Terry Gilliam. But George Miller, who I must admit has never really had a huge misstep critically, he gets dangerously close to self-indulgent folly with 3000 years of longing he doesn't seem entirely in touch with the story he's trying to tell somewhat ironically and despite having conjured it with his daughter Augusta score who's a co-script writer here it's a fine line between eccentric and charming and overblown and trite and Miller's fantasy dances between the two so it's in some cinemas this week they didn't go wide with this movie and I can see why it's very hard for the a mass population to try to connect with this you certainly can't promote it as a mad max from the director of mad max fury road because it's about as far from that film as you can get um it will divide opinion i think it's fair to say
0: yeah i was a bit surprised i've never heard anything about this until a couple of days ago I like, it sort of seems weird that a george miller mm-hmm. film has flown under the radar in the way this has it's it's a passion project for him he wrote it
1: many years ago um he's been developing developing it uh in the wake of the success he had with fury road so um maybe like a lot of passion projects it needed another set of eyeballs on this there's so someone to rein it in maybe he understands what he was trying to do a lot better than the film does that's the feeling i'm getting um there was even a, even even in the very small number of audience members I shared it with yesterday morning, um, there was a couple of walkouts because it does go off in some very weird tangential sort of flights of fantasy that um, don't really convince.
0: So, this one's a, an ambitious but very flawed work. Yeah, interesting. Now, Simon, uh, this week's podcast is brought to you by things I've watched on Disney Plus because I want to talk to you about a brand new series called The Bear. Look, I'll hear no argument against my strongly held belief that the quality of any TV show set in a restaurant or kitchen has a direct correlation with how hungry you are for the food on the show. And so using that metric, and how hungry I've been for a few weeks now for a delicious Chicago-style Italian beef sandwich, The Bear is a 10 out of 10 show, you'll see no better series this year, now hand me my sandwich and leave me alone. Mm Mmm, sandwiches. (laughs) Look, if you've ever thought to yourself that you want to see a half-hour comedy drama that combines the stress-inducing anxiety of the Safdie brothers' uncut gems with any random episode of Bar Rescue, boy, do I have the show for you. It is called The Bear. It's an eight-part TV series. In it, we meet Kami Bizarro. Bizarro? We'll say Bizarro. He's left his family as a young man to become a chef. After spending a decade or so away, working in some of the world's best kitchens, he's now running the Family Italian Beef Sandwich restaurant following the recent suicide death of his brother. Here he must contend with the never-ending problem of bills to pay, family interference in the business, especially from his kind of a brother but not really a brother Richie, who's played by the always exceptionally watchable Ebon Moss bachrach and then he's also dealing with mobsters and customers. And customers, obviously, the worst of the bunch of them. Now... There's very little reinventing the wheel with the show, but it all bubbles away magnificently thanks to the execution of it. Under the control of showrunner Christopher Storer, you've got the writing, which is in no way showy. It puts everything on the table and makes it very easy for any viewer to follow it. But enough character work is obscured throughout the series from view, which makes the journey that we go on with these characters feel even more rewarding for viewers who are paying attention. Also, and again, this is the credits of the writing, the show reminded me a lot of Ted Lasso. It's in no way as earnest as that program, in fact, it's really quite the opposite. But both shows are about a talented outsider who inspires his team to achieve more than they previously thought possible simply by creating a workspace and established patterns that allow these people to be their best. And as such, The Bear is surprisingly really inspiring TV. Now, like all great TV ensembles, you will very quickly find yourself in love with the group of ragtag misfits that surround our lead character. This is especially remarkable in a show like this, which is so dark and edgy in its aesthetic. It's kind of like a lovable Atlanta, and, like, whoever thought that'd be a thing? Yeah. What? So, look, The Bear is covertly a hangout show that also has a lot to say about its very grounded set of characters and various sets of stress and trauma they're grappling with. So I just realised the word grounded is in a show about beef. But anyway. Uh, there's every likelihood this is a TV show that would probably just get one season on TV and disappear forever. Living Only as a listing and articles for years to come about great but cancelled TV shows. As such, the story of these characters in their shitty but delicious sandwich store is actually gets resolved at the end of the season in a really satisfying way. But plot twist, the good news is that the show defied expectation in the US and became a really buzzy hit show. It'll absolutely be back for a second season as a result. And until then, and frankly from now, I'm spending my nights up trying to perfect an Italian beef sandwich.
1: Oh, that sounds yummy mm, sandwich. Um, this this kind of this kind of deep dive into a very niche part of um, the commercial restaurant world suggests that it comes from from a true story. Comes from some sort of base in in reality. Who who are the guys behind this, and do they have any sort of insight into the the, the characters and machinations of the you know restaurant what?
0: world? Sometimes a person can just tell a good story, uh, and that's case, that's the case here with Maybe Christopher Shaw. Sure. So. There are some people associated with the show who I think have a bit of an end to the restaurant scene, so they've certainly gotten some yes. insights to build the world. But broadly, I think you can just look at this as Christopher Storey just telling an interesting story about a man coping with grief. Character-based,
1: okay. That sounds really interesting, and you have been very vocal about how much you like this on your on your socials, and 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 certainly coming out of the US, it's had some great reviews. So, um, if as you say the first season wraps in a satisfying conclusion i'm all for that as well god knows i'm sick of the ongoing struggle with cliffhangers and having to come back for a second season i still haven't revisited physical parts season two which i was very keen on but um let's see how we go it's called the bear it's on disney plus simon you've got yes. movie to talk about let's do that i better talk about orphan first kill do we have to we better when the promoted selling point for your film is the highly anticipated sequel to 2009's cult hit things are getting off to a bad start but
0: that's the entry point for orphan first kill hey, Wait, wait! The wait very wait. daft are you suggesting there is a problem with a film coming out in 2022 that is a sequel to a 2009 smash hit film
1: I may have a problem with that, yes. I think I'm going to make a good argument as to why that's going to be a uh, problem. Can I just
0: point out that probably the greatest movie that we're going to experience in our lifetimes comes out <laughs> at the end of this year. It's called Avatar The Way of Water, and it is a sequel to a 2009 smash hit film that was part of all of our hearts and minds.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if Orphan had the same social or uh, impact that, that uh, Avatar yeah, keep did. Um, keep backpedaling, Simon. Keep backpedaling. Yeah, I'll keep backpedaling. All right um so where'd we get to okay orphan first pill this this is a very daft second bloody adventure of everyone's favorite 30 year old russian psycho dwarf esther played with admirable earnestness by isabel Furman. in the first film we learned that the brattish knife-wielding 11 year old esther was in fact a 33 year old russian woman with hypopituitarism, a rare hormonal disorder that stunted her physical growth and caused proportional dwarfism. I recall vividly the reveal of that stunning twist, and if you're cranky, that's a spoiler, then just grow up, and how hard I laughed at how wondrously preposterous it was. The filmmakers double down on the ridiculous in Orphan First Kill by spinning an origin story that recasts Furman in the role 13 years after the first film, but asking the now 25-year-old adult frame to play ten, wow! Uh, which means lots of force perspective camera angles sets built bigger to make her look small, Uh, co-stars on on boxes, stuff like that. Most giggle-inducing are the quick cuts between Furman's unmistakably older frame and the little girl they use as her (laughs) stand-in. Jeez. Uh, Esther has escaped her Russian mental health facility only after Dr. Exposition has filled us all in on her twitchy state of mind. She heads for the US, where she connects with a family who thought they had lost their daughter several years ago. Now, I'm not going to spoil the one legitimate surprise, in the plotting, suffice to say that Julia Stiles gets to flex those B-movie acting muscles as the family matriarch as Esther finds the crazy tables flipped on her. There are so many gaping plot holes to giggle over, which is why I'm not as down on the film as I probably should be. I actually had a good time, not because it's a satisfying slasher pick, it's not scary at all, but because these kinds of dopey sequels used to be standard in cinemas before the streamers hijacked this kind of IP potential. Um, I was glad to just sit in on a big, dumb Hollywood sequel for the first time in a long time. Um, It's called Orphan First Kill. It's in surprisingly wide release.
0: Yeah, sure. It's because people are films from 2009. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, 2009 was a hell of a year for movies, between Avatar and Orphan. Exactly. It's good that you come around to my way of thinking. <laughs> now you're going to have a look at the one we've all been waiting for, Lord of the Rings, Power of the Ring.
0: In a lot of ways, the new Lord of the Rings show really delivers on the promise of huge budget premium TV. It brings to life the Lord of the Rings, previously only realised on film, and delivers it as an ongoing serialised drama right there on your sets. It's every bit the cinematic spectacle of those Peter Jackson movies, the sets are lavish, the costuming and general art design is lush, and the overall production screams bigness. Casual Lord of the Rings fans who just know the movies, they're probably going to go crazy for the show, and I assume the more dedicated Tolkien fans will probably also appreciate it. But ultimately, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, is talking to that audience that bought into The Lord of the Rings movies. For me, those films always left me a little bit cold. It was just too many similar battles, with lots of characters who so didn't really have that much humanity or complexity to them on screen, I could buy them as archetypes, but just not really as fully realised characters, and frankly, just fantasy quest stories like this aren't really for me. Which is fine, like, you know, not everything's for everybody, it's all okay. I had made a decision, maybe about two-thirds of the way through the first episode of The Rings of Power, that I was happy enough for this to be my entire Rings of Power experience. I was content with that. But, suddenly in the last 30 seconds of the opening episode, I was hit with one heck of a cliffhanger, and the introduction of a new character. It's a mysterious figure from the stars. Now, I'm informed by friends that this guy probably isn't Gandalf making his debut in Middle Earth, and that where we're at in the chronology of Lord of the Rings seems a little early for that. But suddenly my attention really is peaked i guess i'm in for a couple of episodes lord of the rings the rings of power they're not for everyone if you like it, lord of the rings you're in i'm not sure but i i, I think i'm in also in cinemas this week
1: is a film called Both Sides of the Blade. This stars two great actors, Juliette Binoche and Vincent Ledon, and one great director, Claire Denis. Um, this, it's the story of a, a woman who suddenly finds these two very volatile men back in her life. Reports are very good on this film, and it's the big art house release of the week. It's called Both Sides of the Blade.
0: Can I ask a question? Yes. If reviews are so good on this one, why haven't you seen this one and been said you're telling us to go and see Orphan First Kill? <laughs> Uh,
1: because I was able to stumble into a screening of Orphan First Kill, and I had nothing else on, but both sides of the blade. It's just a little bit harder to screen. It is available on some of the US platforms that I. And I was going to have a look at both sides of the blade. But in a week when there's Lord of the Rings and the new George Miller film, and Orphan First Kill, you got to you know you got to make cuts where you can.
0: Love Juliet Binoche though. You got to make cuts where you can for both sides of the blade. <laughs> yeah, good work. So for this week's middle bit, which, you know, we've clearly been thinking and putting a lot of time, you know, in terms of really some very strong hot takes on this one. I think that's clear for the listeners. Something I've been thinking about a lot in the last couple of weeks is we've heard a lot of stories coming from uh, Warner Brothers Discovery with their takeover of HBO Max, mm-hmm. and they have been... Uh, essentially vaulting some of their movies and TV shows. Uh, so, for example, there's the Batgirl movie. Gone. Okay, but like, that's a film that will never see release. But then there's a whole bunch of shows which and movies which saw release and they're just taking it away from the service. Killing them. So, what it's done is suddenly suddenly got a lot of people with their backs against the wall who are upset about the fact that they won't have constant access to the TV shows and movies that they thought they'd have access to from the service. Mm-hmm. And so, they are pissed. And to a certain degree, I understand where they're coming from, Sure, but I've got this niggling feeling in the back of my mind, which is that what you're calling for, which is like the constant state of ever perpetual TV and cinema access, is something that is really only a relatively new phenomenon. Absolutely. Pe- people will talk about, oh, you know, it's outrageous. We'll never be able to get permanent access to this. But also people have only had that for the last like 15 years, that? 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really, like, the advance of DVD. I mean, VHS to a certain degree, but, you know, in terms of, like, VHS as a retail market, it was never particularly, like, massive. Mm. But DVD really sort of created this sort of sense of perpetual access to things, and then that's been fully picked up by the streamers who've, you know, run with that as well. Like, are people right to feel upset by this, or do people need to have a bit more perspective? Yes, what do you think? there is this, I think... Oh, it's a great
1: middle bit because it opens up a whole lot of issues that we're probably not entirely prepared to discuss. But I would also say that there's a sense of entitlement that comes with uh, a current generation that says, even if I'm never going to watch it, I should have the option to watch it. Um, and by removing that option where it's somehow impacting our right to watch
0: it as as part of what now we're the, paying for. The argument for that is that the promise of the streaming service is constant access. Sure. And so lots of people who have adjusted their viewing habits to embrace what these streaming services are offering, and now suddenly there's some of the major ones who are taking a step back, like, whoa, 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 let's maybe not offer everything anymore. Yeah.
1: Yes, I totally get that. And and circumstances will change, and there'll be buyouts, and there'll be corporate hijacks, and all that sort of stuff, which put into you know turnaround product that we thought was going to be there forever that's just unavoidable that will be the way that that aspect may have been hidden from your your average streaming person and person who buys all the platforms hoping to get everything all the time so that's that's going to change that's the reality of Hollywood Um, this also taps into from my perspective my ongoing love for physical media so I can look at my DVD shelf right now and see movies that i've bought in years gone by that maybe i've only watched one or two times if if one if even one time um but i still have that option to reach up there and get it and fall back on the old vhs mantra of watch what you want when you want which the uh, streaming platforms can't guarantee anymore so to actually hold be able to hold the dvd in your hand of the movies you and tv shows you like the most is still a big pull for me and in fact in the What Else Have You Been Watching segment a little bit later, I'm going to mention some of those. So, um, yeah, from my perspective, there's that angle. Where else, what sort of other angles do you have on this one,
0: Dan? Well, I don't know that I've really necessarily got real sort of hot take angles on it. Like part of me, and it's this dichotomy that I'm sort of battling in my own mind, which is that, like everyone, I was very much sold on a promise that we live now in an era of perpetual media. And so if something is released by... HBO, for example, in theory, that should always live on on HBO. So it is upsetting to me the idea that a show like Mrs. Fletcher, which was one of the absolute best series of last year, mm. little seen. And I think that if HBO had maybe gotten their sort of publicity in order a little bit, uh, they could have capitalized on the success that uh, Catherine, gosh, why can't I think kind of, of her name? Uh, Catherine Hahn. So she became a big household um, star thanks to her involvement as the villain in WandaVision. Like, she had this really great HBO series running at pretty much the same time, but they just took no effort at all Never to promote heard of this it thing. It. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, very frustrating. You should check the show out. It's very good.
1: Okay, I like her a lot. Sure.
0: Yeah, it's a good little character piece. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, like, that show's not going to be available on HBO Max anymore, and to me that's a real shame because it's really one of those great TV series that all it really needs is a bit of promotion, and suddenly I think it becomes a very viable uh, bit of content. I'm thinking about, like, my own, like, past week, where, yes, you got these big sort of Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones shows out, but the thing that's been giving me joy is going back and uh, considering my Mad Men rewatch. Last night, I watched Guy walks into an advertising agency. If you know Mad Men, like, you know that is the absolute sort of standout episode. Oh, boy, I had so much joy last night watching it. It was just incredible. But I watched that, and, like, I've been watching episodes of Picket Fences, which has cropped up on Disney+, so you know, uh, very much a library title from the very early 90s. But I've been having a great time watching it. And so that's these streaming services living up to the promise of what they have to offer where an old show is just as viable a viewing option as a brand new program. And so I really like the idea of that. But at the same time, I think I just get annoyed by the entitlement that people feel saying, how dare you? This is absolutely uh, like you're spitting in the face of us. We've always had access to this and now you're taking it away. And it seems to be lacking just that sort of, you know, real proper understanding that this is a relatively new phenomenon. And it happens to be that back in the olden days, in the days of yore, like, if you missed, like, an episode that was on that week, like, you're probably never going to see that episode again. you gone, exactly.
1: Is there... um? Are we all also sort of forgetting that one of the things we most like discussing on our social media platforms is what hasn't come to uh, your local streaming platform? Where is family? Where is eight is enough from my perspective? And, and you know, there's still a whole sort of swathe of content out there that... It, 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 <sighs> isn't being released to these platforms and has disappeared into into time and, and we're being fed the line that, um, you know, you're entitled to watch all of these things when, in fact, we never really have been.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an element of fairness to that. So something I bang on about a lot is the lack of access to Homicide Life on the Street, yep. which was easily one of the greatest shows of the 90s, hugely influential. Pretty much every show we've been talking about as being, you know, one of the all-time greats. Sure. Uh, like all of it, just owes this massive debt to this show from the '90s, and it should be more available. It was underseen then, and I think has the potential to actually be watched by people now. Mm. But you know, good luck being able to do that because it's just nowhere. Mm. And again, it, we come back to the
1: question of: Has will this turn Batgirl into the holy grail of content that was just will eventually leak onto YouTube and, and start doing the old underground? Um, underground screening rooms and stuff like that because they did have a whole lot of screenings for cast and crew on uh, on the Warner yeah, that, Brothers that'll,
0: that'll never make its way out you
1: really don't think so I think it's going to become oh, okay so, okay, let's talk about that for a second all right I know, so I know this... it's not meant to I know under federal law yeah, and yeah, no, no, I know what you're saying
0: so there was a story the other day which was about how the directors of Batgirl they put a request in to be able to get just like a copy of the film okay and then they were re- like that was rejected yeah the reason that was rejected is because do you remember there was a film called Zack snyder's justice league i know of it yeah do you remember this <laughs> the reason that actually managed to you know be bullied into existence was because he had stolen the footage of justice league <laughs> uh there was a lot of negotiation going backwards and forwards between warner brothers who owned that footage yeah and Zack snyder who blatantly stole it from warner brothers wow
1: these
0: are and adults so these are adult that. people these are adult people.
1: <laughs> I didn't know that there was a, a theft involved. That's an extraordinary Hollywood story.
0: Yeah, like it took some considerable time and I think a bit of money for Warner Brothers to get their hands back on it. Jeez. Okay, and it's because of that that you're going to find that Warner Brothers will be particularly uh, protective over making sure that their footage isn't leaked out. Because the last thing they want is for the filmmakers who made Batgirl. <coughs> The last thing they want is for the filmmakers who made Batgirl to suddenly be releasing clips of the film out mm. and getting people to demand the Batgirl release. Like they don't want that.
1: Oh no, I bet they don't. Certainly from a yeah, so, yeah from like nothing else other than a fan, fan um, financial point of view, it's uh,
0: it's so, it yeah, would be all disastrous. All efforts will be made to keep that down, like under lock and key. Like that is not going to get released.
1: You know what? You know what? This needs to be this needs to be the next Ocean's Eleven film where they all break into the Warner's vault and, and get out the, the negative for black for Batgirl. I love
0: it, but instead instead of like eleven uh, known criminals who've each got their their own skills, it's like eleven known filmmakers who <laughs> you know. It's, so it's like Coppola, Scorsese. So I'd love to see I'd love
1: to see Coppola hanging from a cable over a <laughs> <laughs> over a uh,
0: electronic uh, alarm system. That'd be cool. So basically, the scene is like Coppola comes into a dark room and you see like all the red beams going across the room. <laughs> And so Coppola, much like uh, Catherine (laughs) Sander-Jones in Entrapment, is crawling his way through these red beams, makes it to the other side, gets his hands on the canister, and then turns looks directly down the barrel of the camera at the audience and says, I'd like to see Daredevil be able to do that marvel, people. And then winks at the camera and then starts backflipping his way out of the room again. I'd
1: love to see that. As long as he wears the same leotard that Catherine Zeta-Jones warned, I'd I'd watch that. That's that's quality movie making. We're in the wrong business. All right, are
0: we done with this middle bit? Because it's getting silly. I think it's just gotten <laughs> into the right place. Okay, Simon, I've lost thread of where we're at. What happens at this part of the show?
1: What else have you been watching, Dan? You've already mentioned a couple of them. Do you want to rack it on about them again?
0: Uh, picket Fences, Mad Men. Yeah.
1: Done. No, okay, so if you've never seen Picket Fences, Picket Fences is like, have you ever seen them? Yeah, yeah, I was a fan. Not yeah. must-watch TV, but I watched more than I didn't watch.
0: Yeah, it was a really interesting beast of a show. So I want to say that the show launched in 1991. It came off the back of Twin Peaks and like the sort of... Twin Peaks brought weirdness to television. Mm. Picket Fences was a lot more accessible than Twin Peaks. Wasn't Wasn't Picket like Fences
1: it. more sort of a Northern Exposure riff? I always thought they were cut from the same cloth.
0: You know what? You're right. Sorry, this is my head cold that's playing tricks here. Right. No, sorry. Northern Exposure came off the back of Twin Peaks mm. and then Picket Fences came off the back of Northern Exposure. Right, okay yeah so this is placing it more like about say 92 93 yeah sorry spot on good pick yeah this is good what call. i do i, I make up yeah. your mistakes that's okay let's move on yeah very much so uh but yeah like essentially it's like carrying on that sort of torture being just a little bit weird and so this is a series which uh a number of mayors sort of went through so a number of serious uh, like gory um deaths one of them spontaneously combusted uh <laughs> nothing funnier one, than that wow yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember what happened. Uh, one of them fell into a freezer. Who was the lead dude in this? Was this Skerritt? This was Tom Skerritt, wasn't it? Tom, Tom Skerritt. Yeah, with Costas Smandalore as the <laughs> Costas cop. Uh, wow.
1: Uh, love Tom Skerritt. One of my favourite actors. I was lucky enough to interview, not that long ago, a very oh, really? a, a very aged Tom Scarrett. Um And he responded very favorably because t- there's a great line in Alien when he goes, ah, oh, that's a bunch of horse shit. And I, that became like our my group of friends call sign whenever we didn't believe in anything it became the tom scarrett line and he thought that was hilarious so yeah very fun, very sweet man
0: yeah i generally love tom scarrett i think he's great yeah but what's interesting about picket fences is that it's a very socially progressive tv show it's set in wisconsin Mm. okay so it's middle america but this is a show where every week they would look at a major sort of hot topic sort of an issue so It might be abortion one week. It might be uh, talking about injecting kids with growth hormones. Like, if you're a little weedy kid, like, you know, that's a way that you can sort of get some bulk. Was that a thing? Did they really do that? I don't remember that. That's that's nasty. You can see that in the first season of the show. streaming now on Disney+. (coughs) They're dealing with lesbians. They're dealing with, um, sorry, teen lesbians. Uh, they're dealing with uh, a woman in a coma who has uh, been impregnated and the husband's keeping her alive until she gives birth to this child. What are the ethics of that? You know, essentially it's just every week they come up with something which is providing a venue to discuss something in an open forum. Am so I right Am I
1: right in thinking it was a David E. Kelly joint?
0: It is. Yep. So much like all of David E. Kelly's shows, particularly from the 90s, wrote every episode of it has a writing team who are feeding him story ideas but he'd go off and bang out the scripts and off it went like it's a really fit it's an impressive feat okay you watch watch the first season of the show and i think that the production is a little bit shaky there's some really interesting guest stars that crop up through it so lots of faces that you'll know from you know a bunch of tv shows and movies from the 90s and early 2000s that's interesting a lot of character actors uh, you'll see that happen through the storytelling becomes a bit more sophisticated in the second season uh the cast becomes a bit better as well so john don Cheadle joins the cast wow sorry the aforementioned oceans 11 star Don Cheadle <laughs> baby Don Cheadle he must have been very young back then that would have been pretty. Oh, yeah. that would have
1: been early where he he sort of turned up in one of the early Spike Lee films I think was his first gig so has it survived yeah, the transfer does it yeah, look aliens. like old television or have Disney plus given it a bit of a spit and polish
0: uh, it's got a bit of a spit and polish, but it still looks, you know,
1: pretty old school. Charming is what they say. Oh, it looks rustic. Rustic is a good word
0: to describe it, as it should for picket yeah. fences. All right. Yeah, so definitely watch it. Uh, I mentioned, like, the teen lesbians. There's an episode where the daughter and her, played by Holly Marie Combs, uh, she's up late one night with her best friend. They start talking about kissing boys, and so he's, she's like, have you ever kissed a girl? And so they kissed, and... Uh, the girl is suddenly, like her friend, suddenly thinks that maybe she actually is interested in Kimberly in a way that she hadn't really sort of uh, considered previously. Wow. Meanwhile, Kimberly's just kind of like grossed out by the whole thing. And she's like, no, you know, this is not really happening. But then she reveals later on that she was actually sort of a little bit sexually aroused by the situation. And so she's working through her issues. Now, if you watched that episode in 1992, 93, whatever the episode aired, like, it kind of seemed like it was a bit of a progressive move. 2022. It's a very awkwardly um, staged conversation. I think we've definitely sort of moved on a fair bit conversation-wise mm. and what we're willing to accept. But you know, there's definitely some honest truths that are discussed then, and it still holds up reasonably well as an hour of dramatic storytelling. You know, that's but, it. you know, it's certainly it's dated in some respects.
1: That is interesting though, because it does point to a period in time where uh, the movie of the week and the and the the issue the TV issue of the week was was um, it, it really sort of positioned television as being at the forefront of creating social talk, of of, of being the um, conversation starter on some of these bigger social issues and social change, so that's um that's significant in that regard.
0: Well, look, I came of age like when when P- oh, sorry, our pick offense was airing these episodes. Like, you know, I was thirteen, fourteen, mm. fifteen watching these sort of morality stories sort of playing out. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of exposure that I had to some of these fairly progressive ideas were formed through this television show. Sure. I think I tweeted this out during the week, which is that I wonder how much of my political viewpoints come from you know being so heavily influenced by Pick fences as a young kid. And Dog the Bounty Hunter. And Dog the Bounty Hunter, mm, which I've never actually seen, but sure. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of interesting to sort of talk about that in like a 90s context, because yeah. I think that... Throughout the 90s, there was definitely a sense of trying to provide a lot more context to, um, you know, some fairly sort of outlandish social issues. But it's sort of like this pre-internet thing. And like through the internet, we've gotten access to a lot of viewpoints and perspectives from people that we didn't ordinarily have within our day-to-day social circles. Mm. And so, you know, I think there's been a lot of progression that's happened because of platforms like Twitter where you can make fun of Twitter all you want for all sorts of reasons that are often fairly well-deserved. But I do think that our general understanding about other people and uh, compassion has been impacted quite heavily. Like, the world is a different place oh, because we've got access to these different voices now. Absolutely. So, you've got that. But I think in this 90s period, like, there was, a like, an urge where I think that we were looking for that technical, like, the technological release and access to be able to do that kind of thing. Because I think we were trying to make sense of where we were, we'd you know uh thinking about like through a us perspective that gone through like civil rights in the 60s and things had kind of settled and it was at that point now where it's like things kind of feel like they're a little bit more settled than they had been let's try to find that perspective on it and so i think there was just a lot of soul searching happening there which happened through both dramas but then also the rise of daytime talk shows yeah. like your ricky uh ricky lakes your oprah winfrey's your donahue's and like there's a reason those shows all came out at that time yeah
1: absolutely They were pre-internet gab fest that that sort of brought together very diverse opinions. Um, Yes, we could get very deep into why I think Twitter's been more damaging than good, but there are both sides to to that argument, so we can maybe delve into that. In a special episode, maybe a future middle bit. Um, What else have I been watching? I want to mention very briefly a DVD company called Imprint. Uh, No commercial Um, partnerships on this is just something that i bring up they're going through this great sort of release pattern where they're bringing some great old movies to blu-ray it peaked last month with a movie called the beast which is a jason patrick film about a group of russian uh, tank soldiers uh, who are caught in the afghanistan conflict it's an early film from director kevin reynolds who went on to Infamy as the director of Robin Hood and Waterworld became one of little lackeys, uh, but he made his best film in The Beast and it's been given a beautiful Blu-ray release. There's also stuff like Charlton Heston in The Medusa Touch, uh, sorry, uh, Richard Burton in The Medusa Touch and one of the classic films in the 70s, Day of the Locust. A lot of these haven't seen any kind of DVD or Blu-ray release in the past. So from Imprint, uh, I get their newsletter once a month and I'm always sort of keen to see what of the great eight, 70s, 80s, 90s films are coming from on Blu-ray from Imprint. So, um, like I say, no commercial agreement is in place. That's just me saying I love what Imprint are doing. So, uh, check out Imprint.
0: Yeah. Uh, Simon, I think that brings us to the end of this segment. Is that
1: correct? Yes, I think we're at the end of this segment. There is a quick save the date. Uh, some dates I want to mention. September okay, what we got? September 8th to 11th, get along to the Sydney Underground Film Festival. It's playing at event cinemas, George Street. It's opening with the new Patton Oswalt film, I Love You Dad, which was a big South by Southwest hit. Uh, September 23, Lou, debuts on netflix this is the story of a young mother who teams up with this very cranky mean looking woman played by alice and Janney to pursue a kidnapper it's a great trailer don't know how the film is but on september 23 that comes to netflix and november 9 to 13th up in your part of the country uh the asia pacific screen awards and screen forum is on that's happening in brisbane and surrounding areas Brisbane, Queensland. In fact, um, from November nine to thirteen, a coming together of all the nations of the Asia Pacific region to award and talk film.
0: Awesome. Uh, also, <laughs> just interestingly, playing at uh, the Gallery of Modern Art at the Cinema Tech is a Fellini retrospective for the month. Nice. Big Fellini fan. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I've seen very little Fellini, and I saw this an opportunity to go and see some stuff, but instead, I think I'm just going to see Bullet Train at <laughs> Little Hoyts. <points. laughs> <laughs> Frederico Fellini's bullet train. Um, I've seen some Fellini
1: stuff. It's it, it, they, it does pop up quite a bit in sort of festival retrospectives. Um, he's certainly of the time, but no director has ever made movies like Fellini made. Some of the stuff that he can capture in a frame of film is just... Um, Surreal and beautiful. So you should get along. Enjoy. It's just some great Fellini films.
0: The- yeah, not enough to start like Brad Pitt, though, which is disappointing. Yeah, needed more Aaron Taylor-Johnson in there. This Week in History. Sorry, my starting this one. Here in September 4, 1995, Xena, Warrior Princess starring Lucy Lawless, debuted in the US, a spin-off of the superior Hercules, the journey Ooh, continues. that's going to get emails. September 4, 2000... 2000- no, no, look, 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 look. <laughs> That show is just better, quite frankly, but I don't necessarily abscri- subscribe to the political views of series star Kevin Sawyer.
1: Yeah, he's going right off the deep end. Uh, just established. establish. September 4, 2002, the first winner of American Idol was named. Dan Barrett, putting you on the spot. Who was crowned winner of the first series of American Idol?
0: Oh, look, I mean, it's probably like a Kelly Clarkson <gasps> or something, but ding, I just ding, want to ding, say ding, that it's ding. William
1: Hung. Well done. <laughs> William Hung there's a great name from the past it was in fact Kelly Clarkson yeah see you didn't think I'd know no that. I didn't think you'd know that I thought I'd catch you with this one I didn't think I'd know that I'm either. I'm gonna get you with this one though September 5 1976 the Muppet Show premieres on television with who as the first guest star so I can't think of her name but it was like that dancer is that right you, are you thinking of Juliet Prowse Yes It's not her It's Mia Farrow Star of Rosemary's Baby For really? some reason They thought the star Of the most successful Horror film of all time Was a good first guest For The Muppet Show But she's very funny Yes it was Mia Farrow Was the first guest star Is that true? Absolutement I thought
0: it, I thought it was The Juliet Price episode Because isn't that the episode Where they introduced Mama Mama Which I thought Was in the very first episode mm, I don't know about all of that
1: I can only know What my cut and paste job From the internet tells me And the internet tells me It was Mia Farrow
0: Okay, I'm going to do some browsing while we continue this segment. Uh, What's going on here? In 1994, September 6, actor Jackson Pinkney... (laughs) Okay, sorry, I just read through the rest of this. Can't believe we're talking about it. Uh, ...was awarded $487,000 for being partially blinded by Jean-Claude Van Damme, the muscles from Brussels, during a filming of Cyborg.
1: What a great film that was, except for Jackson Pinkney, who had one of his eyes taken out. So, um, sorry, Jackson. Bad move, JCVD.
0: Sorry, if we're going to talk about Cyborg, can we talk about the little bit of trivia around Cyborg? Let's do it. Bring it on.
1: Albert Pune's classic film, Cyborg. Always happy to talk JCVD.
0: The original development of Cyborg, and forgive me if I'm getting this mixed up, but I'm pretty sure i got my titles right here. The original development of Cyborg was that it was a sequel to a fairly great film from 1987 called Masters of the Universe. Mm,
1: it was. That's exactly right. It was being developed and then scrapped, heaped, and then it was turned into a, a JCVD vehicle for the great director Albert Pyun, who went on to make such films as The Sword and the Sorcerer and, and a whole bunch of other classic DV, uh, VHS titles. <laughs> classic, he
0: says. I've got a lot of fondness for that Masters of the Universe. Yeah.
1: Well, that's crazy. But yeah, no, it's... a. Um, it's kind of a wacky film. September 7, 1979, ESPN debuts. Dan, what does ESPN stand for?
0: Oh, that's a really great yes, question. Yes,
1: I know. Oh. I didn't know it, actually, when I saw this. I I, I got a couple of the letters right, but I couldn't get okay,
0: it. Okay, so S&N would be Sports Network. Mm, yes. I'm going to... Mm.
1: This is... Oh, look, you can feel the tension in the air the the brain cogs ticking over
0: do you want I'm, some I'm thinking sure music what is it, what's the acronym
1: for entertainment sports programming network okay yeah that makes sense yeah. so there you go uh birthday time oh sorry i'm busy just looking up muppets at the moment <laughs> that didn't come according out to that, to that didn't wiki- come out the way you thought it
0: came out <laughs> according to the wikipedia entry here, yes there is the pilot episode, right, which is the Muppets Valentine show. Ah. But that is not actually strictly the first episode. Who was in the who was in the that, that episode? So in the, in that pilot episode was Mia Farrow.
1: Right. So the the the, the 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 actual wording I got from the website was The Muppet Show premieres on television with Mia Farrow as guest star. That was the Does that read correctly? They wouldn't have led with I mean, Juliet
0: Prowse. Juliet Prowse was like some Broadway actress. She wasn't kind of a big deal. no, but don't forget, like the actual sort of deal with the Muppet Show, which was that they were filming it in the UK and didn't really have access to like a large pool of talent that would be known in the US as well. Mm. So a lot of the time they were just grabbing people that kind of had been around. walk past the studio. <laughs> I'm well, I can. So it's got- It's got here for episode one that it's some gentleman named Joel Grey.
1: Oh, well, Joel Grey's the Oscar winner for Cabaret. And he was certainly in there, but he would have been
0: in the pilot episode. But Well, he's in the first episode. The pilot episode is Mia Farrow. Oh, okay. And then there was a second pilot that was filmed called Sex and Violence. What? (laughs) Yeah. You're deep diving on the Muppets. That's what we're here for. Simon, let's move on.
1: September 4, 1981, the beautiful Beyoncé, star of Dreamgirls and many other fine films, well, maybe, uh, was born. Happy birthday, Beyoncé. Beyoncé Knowles. Uh,
0: September 5, 1973, Paddy Considine, who people would know from Hot D, he was born hot d uh oh i house see house of dragon. the dragon yes
1: i get it hot d uh on september 6 look at this one 1879 an actor named max schreck was born you may not know who max schreck is but you certainly know his visage he is the famous nosferatu uh, in the film uh, he played count orlock nosferatu in that classic german uh, take on dracula
0: happy birthday max schreck. and of course of course, he also battled the Michael Keaton Batman in the second Sin movie.
1: Yes, the character Max Shreck, didn't he? That was Christopher Walken's character. Yeah. It's all coming together now. Boy, we're on fire today.
0: September 7, 1987, Evan Rachel Wood, the star of 13 and Westworld, she got uh, released from her birth canal. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. September
1: 8, 2002, One Gatton Matarazzo, that kooky-looking kid from Stranger Things who I like a lot, I'm keen to see if he can make a career out of himself, he was born September 8, 2020, uh,
0: 2002. Well, did you see that movie that he was in that I talked about on this very podcast yes. about two weeks ago? Yes, I,
1: did, uh, I didn't watch it, but I know you talked about it. Something about... Oh, I can't remember what it was about. It was a teen high school thing, wasn't it?
0: It was a teen high school thing. I don't actually
1: remember the name uh, of it. But you wish, I wish I wish hadn't have brought it up now.
0: I mean, you're the guy that's saying that you'd like to see if you can make a career of things, and yet you're not even watching well, it. he's in the punk show. He I like your support.
1: I like the punk, that that hidden camera thing he did. That was quite funny. Love
0: a good hidden camera oh, I see how to watch it because I'm a grown-up. <laughs> Time for the sign-off. Indeed, let's get out of here. Thank you for listening to Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. You can start your day with my free newsletter. It's called always be Watching at alwaysbewatching.com. It's got the big stories in TV, streaming and film. And on Friday, you've got the always be streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launched that very week. Uh, you can read my words
1: at screen spacenet Head on over there. I'm gonna put some fresh content up. It's been a oh, pardon me, it's been a while. <laughs> Just had a little burp. Uh, I'm on the Twitter at Simon R Foster. One go to the Screen Watching YouTube channel. Um, we have an interview up on there with Craig Silverstein, who's the showrunner for Pantheon, the new AMC animated show, um, which is a, an interesting chat. He had some interesting things to say about the AI they use in that uh, in that sh- in that show. And the Screen Watching Facebook page at Screen Watching Podcast.
0: Indeed. Anyway, folks, this has been Screen Watching. We'll be back next week.